You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to our uh, gospel reflection, our Byzantine lectionary reflection for the 10th Sunday after Pentecost. The church gives for our consideration this Sunday the story of the healing of the epileptic boy in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. There's a number of themes that are woven together here this coming Sunday that we can take a look at. And so a little bit of a red flag or a warning that if, if we're a little bit uh, uh, disorganized in our comments, it's just simply to give you the tools for your own your own meditation and consideration as we're heading toward the Sunday. Um, both that of the power of faith and of prayer in preparation for the great feasts of the Transfiguration and Dormition, the fast that's coming up beginning August 1st, the Dormition fast. But maybe a, a, a deeper layer to the, the, the what is presented this coming Sunday is that of suffering and challenges in our apostleship I say it's a deeper, more foundational level because it's, it's really this post-Pentecost theme coming through uh, prior to that second layer of the lectionary with the feast days and so forth. So we have the 10th Sunday after Pentecost, the healing of the epileptic boy, and this ministry which, which the church is engaged in in the post-Pentecost season, um, the discovering of what it means to be ministers of Christ, entering into and engaging in his ministry and what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. So let's take a look at that in Matthew chapter 17. We've got our Bibles out. Father Sebastian, you got a Bible over there? Wonderful. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 through 23. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 through 23. At that time, a man approached Jesus and threw himself on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have pity on my son, for he is a lunatic and suffers severely, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, O believing, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the devil went out of him. And from that moment, the boy was cured. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and asked, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For amen, I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Now while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. 
as usual, try to get the context, make sure we are not just parachuting into this text unknowingly. So, Father Sebastian, help us understand here in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been over the past few Sundays in this time of healing in Jesus's ministry, but now there begins, it seems as though we've entered into another stage of that ministry of healing. Share with us a little bit of the context in which we find this gospel in the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew's gospel is divided into two parts. In fact, all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have two main parts to their body. There's introductory material, infancy narratives, and post-resurrectional material in all of them. But if you take the, the body of the three synoptic gospels, you can divide it into two parts. Everything from the baptism up to Caesarea Philippi, when they proclaim him as the Christ, this is their identification or identifying Jesus as the Messiah, the long way to Messiah. This is shown at the baptism, and then the they hear that voice at the baptism. This is the Son of God. This is the and they see the Spirit descend. <clears throat> this is all Christological imagery, messianic imagery. And then at the end of that first half of the gospel, at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked them, well, Who do you say that I am? And they say what the voice said at the baptism and what they saw. They say, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. But the second half of the gospel now is Jesus revealing to them that he's not simply the Messiah. He's not simply the long-awaited son of David, the king who they're waiting to restore the kingdom of God in a Solomonic kind of way. He is something greater. He is not just the human king or the earthly king. He's the divine king that they had from before they ever even had a human king. And so that second half of the gospel begins with a text which is parallel to that baptism story, and that is the transfiguration. And it concludes with a story that is parallel to Caesarea Philippi, that is the resurrection. We'll talk more about that, of course, as we go along and we uh, meditate upon the transfiguration later on. But the second half of the gospel begins now with this transfiguration story in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. So just after the transfiguration, and from the transfiguration all the way until the end of the gospel, we are heading towards Jerusalem, in which we will see the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's the theme we're going to be seeing, and so that's why we see it at the end of this section here. We'll hear it in every section from here on out. Jesus began to tell them he is going to Jerusalem. The Jews are going to kill him, but God will raise him from the dead. And then you have another little story, and he says, and Jesus told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. And you hear this over and over in the second half of the gospel until it finally happens. So this is the, that's the theme. You know, we're going to see this theme picked up then in the epistle, applied, if you will. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. But through all of that, I'm going to rise from the dead. And those words are, as we learn in the epistle, not only for Christ, but for all Christians who enter and engage in the ministry of Christ, as we see the apostles now do. They, they're sent out, apparently, to do this healing ministry. No longer is Christ alone going around and healing the paralytic and healing the blind man and so forth, but now he's sent out the apostles to begin to kind of like training wheels, you know, go out and give it a try, see what happens. And here they, they find an epileptic boy, apparently possessed by a demon. And the father says, interesting, 
he says, often he falls into the fire and often into the water. You know, as I was reading that, it just jumped out at me that, that you know, especially in the Gospel of John, these themes of blood and water and fire and so forth have this, a deeper theological meaning. But here, but here, the, this, this crazed boy is, is being thrown into, literally almost thrown into death, kind of like Jesus is going to be here at the end of the Gospels. They're going to kill him. But through all of this suffering, all of this difficulty, there is hope. Can you talk a little bit about this fire and water theme here in the Gospel of Matthew, what we're supposed to understand from it, and in, in what's the purpose? Of, why is Matthew pointing this out to us? Well, the, just at the first level, the you know, demons seek the death of those they possess, right? The devil is the author of death, as the Book of Wisdom tells us. God created man in his, the image of his immortality that is for eternity, for life, for eternal life. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world. So the devil is the author of death. He is the one who brings this in. He is the one that, that tricks man to turn away from the loving embrace of his heavenly father. And so we, those who are involved in, in the ministry of uh, exorcism will tell you that in the end, this is really what is going on in all possessions. So this story actually fits very nicely. It's a textbook case into, uh, into that category. Any exorcist will tell you that this is the end, the end of all, ex, uh, all possession. The purpose of the demon of, of the possession or obsession is to drive the person to madness, drive the person to situations in which they will die, and even tragically try to take their own life. Of course, we know in, in the Gospels and the Epistles, Jesus makes use of all of the elements of this world and all of our situations, all of our sufferings and difficulties to bring about life. I can't help but think there's a baptismal theme underlying this, is we're going to look at the Epistle text that we enter also into the sufferings of Christ and through these sufferings, through a, a death to our old life, as this boy is about to experience, there is hope and a possibility of, of resurrection. The, the gospel, as, as Jesus says in the gospel, that this can only be drawn, um, uh, driven out through prayer and fasting. And underlying all of that is his comment regarding, regarding faith and the mustard seed. You know, it's, impo- it's important for us not to just run over these texts and these ideas and these theological terms because we've heard them so many times, but to stop and remind ourselves, well, what is faith? What happens when we fast or what is supposed to happen when we fast? What takes place when we pray? Simply put, we can say that, that faith is this, this total giving of ourselves, our intellect, our will, our whole self to Christ who has made us. And therefore, it is a form of baptism. It's a union with him. And no matter how small that union is, no matter how small that, that gift of faith is, nevertheless, when we come into communion with Christ, the result is a sharing in his life. And when we share in his life, we share an eternal life. There is hope for this, for, for this boy and for those who put their faith in Christ. Hope the possibility of resurrection to eternal life. But then, of course, Jesus says, yeah, there's hope, but there's a whole perverse generation here 
that really doesn't have that hope because they have no faith. Father, talk to us. Why is Jesus so down on these guys? And, uh, and I think there's probably more going on here when he talks about perverse generation that we should be hearing. Yeah, so the, um, the language here is supposed to recall for us Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 20, for those who want to go back and read it. The, this is the end of Deuteronomy. Moses has been with the people from the Exodus, from bringing them out of Egypt, all the plagues, all along through all the signs that he worked for them, all of the teachings he gave them. And, and then all the evidence of what, everything he said, it's all happened now. They've, they've left Egypt, right? All the plagues God brought upon, they, and through the Passover, they crossed the Red Sea. They went to Mount Sinai. They got the stone tablets. They, got, they saw the fire on the mountain. God came to dwell among them, and they still didn't believe. And so Moses had to eventually, through prayer, uh, <laughs> bring the people back and restore their relationship with God at Mount Sinai. He then brings them to the promised land and they don't want to go in. And so God has them wander in the wilderness for 40 years as a punishment because they'd refused to go in. Moses has to endure all of this. What was supposed to be a fairly easy job, Exodus chapter three, when you go back and look at Exodus chapter three, after reading the end of book of Deuteronomy, you flash back to the beginning of the story where God calls Moses, says, go get the people out of Egypt, bring them to Mount Sinai, and I'm going to take them to the promised land. <laughs> and you realize it's taken Exodus chapter 4 all the way through the book of Leviticus and Numbers and the rest of Deuteronomy to finally get them there. And in the end, because of the people and Moses' impatience with them, the people don't go in and Moses won't go in, only the children, the next generation will go in after 40 years wandering the wilderness. So Moses sings some songs or some poems at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, these psalms of Moses. And one of them is basically in a, in a long song telling the story of how these people have, are, though they are the children of God, though he has reached out to them like a loving father, though he's done everything for them, provided everything for them, they've done nothing but refuse his assistance, refuse his blessings, and refuse to have relationship with him. They've seen all the signs, and yet they still won't believe. And so Moses says this perverse generation, this perverse generation that will, because of that, not enter into the promised land. And so Jesus has been with these people for now three years in a very small little geographical place, you and I have spent much time there on that northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's not a lot of land. He's been traveling from Capernaum over to Bethsaida and up onto the mountain and into the cave and down on the shore and gets in a boat, but then he comes right back. He's all over this area. There's nobody who hasn't seen him work miracles. There's nobody who hasn't heard his teachings Many have witnessed incredible things over and over. Every time Jesus comes to town, people are healed. And yet, after three years of this, they're like the perverse generation that Moses was dealing with. They had seen all the signs. They had heard all the teachings. All the evidence was there, just as that Moses was the one called by God. All the evidence is there that Jesus is the Messiah. The long way to Messiah, they waited for for hundreds of years, and they just 
won't believe. You know, I, I'm thinking of two things. First of all, the experience of the early church heading out of Jerusalem. And, um, and we get a sense in scripture that like the cards just kind of fell in front of them, like people, you know, big mass conversions. And that did happen. But, you know, <laughs> there's many times in which they literally have to shake the dust from their feet and just walk away. And certainly the, the mission of the church is a, can, be, can be quite frustrating at times, can be re- quite frustrating to all of us, not just in the early church, but today. As I said, there's these multiple themes taking place in the application or the lectionary that's given to us. But I think the most fundamental one is this, this theme of apostleship, this engagement of the church in the ministry of Christ in this post-Pentecost season, having received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're now sent out into the world. But of course, we're sent out in the world, and it's not easy. You know, last, last Sunday, we had the gospel of, of the apostles in the boat. The stormy sea rises up, and the, and the fathers of the church tell us, this stormy sea is the symbol of the world. And the struggles that we're going to face and the challenges that we're going to face, and unless we rely totally upon Christ, who, who reaches out his hand, he comes to us walking upon the waves, he comes to us walking upon the world, if you will, through all the difficulties and challenges, unless we rely upon him, we are not going to be able to reach our goal, to come to the conclusion of our journey, to come to the, the safe harbor, if you will. And similarly here in the following Sunday, we have this theme again of the challenge and the difficulty of apostleship, the difficulty and challenge of the ministry of Jesus Christ as we engage in it as baptized Christians. And, and then this underlying or, or, or overshadowing theme or answer that in the midst of all of this, there, there is an answer, and it's prayer and fasting. I come back to you, Father, and I ask you, why prayer and fasting? Why are these two acts so powerful? And I, I think we just tie it there with, with what we were saying earlier about faith. I often say that the power of faith. It's an amazing thing in Scripture. The power of faith. If you have faith, the sight of a mustard seed, you move mountains. Why is this why is it so powerful? And why is it that prayer and fasting is the answer to this most difficult of situations the apostles find themselves? Well, you want me to answer all of that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, what we're going to see in, in the epistle also is going to, of course, confirm all of this. But first of all, that theme of prayer, of, of faith, you know, Moses had given them, God had given them through Moses, all the signs, all the reason. To believe he had shown them who he was he'd shown them what he can do for them over and over and they could all remember what god had done in the past every time when moses gave them a hard time he then god sent the frogs when moses gave them more he god sent the flies when when moses uh, when pharaoh when pharaoh brought, was going to try and kill him at the red sea then god parted the red sea for them but over when they were hungry he gave them manna when they were thirsty he in the water from the rock they can all remember that. They had reason. They had reason for great faith because faith is the belief that God will act now and in the future in the way he has in the past. So they have to have their faith has to rest on reason. And they had been given all the reason through Moses or here in this story through Jesus. They've been given all the reason. They'd seen what God had done. And now they should know who he is by watching what he's done and therefore what he will do now and in the future. 
And so they had the reason, but they weren't exercising that faith. They should have been upon that reason, right? And so what is it that keeps them from that next step? They, they know what God has done, so they should be, and who he is therefore, so therefore they should be able to, knowing who God is, know what he will do now and in the future in their lives. But they're not moving to that next step. They're not exercising that faith. And so Jesus tells us this requires prayer and fasting because fasting, uh, as we all know, doesn't change God. It changes us, right? God doesn't change. He's immutable, as the theologians will like to remind us. He doesn't change. So prayer and fasting don't change God. They change us. So it, as we fast, what are we doing? We're exercising our willpower. We're, uh, we open up that refrigerator, and there's, there's the hamburger, and there's the bowl of beans from the night before. Which one am I going to have make for dinner tonight or lunch? I'd like to have that hamburger, but let's bring out the bowl of beans again. You close the fridge. Well, what we just did, you know, God doesn't care whether we eat beans or, or hamburger. God cares about us. And so, but what we've just done is though we yearned for that hamburger, though we yearned for that, we made a conscious decision to choose something else. We had two options there. Uh, eating hamburger isn't going to change, isn't going to affect our relationship with God. But the choice we made by rejecting something we yearned for and choosing something that we, we, we made an intellectual decision for that thing over and against the one we were, our bodies were yearning for, strengthens our willpower. It's like spiritual calisthenics. You know, or, or first time we ever do, start doing push-ups. I know I, you know I start doing exercises about once or twice a year, and I do them for a few days, and then I give up again. But when I first start, it's hard. But then the next day, it's easier. Next day, you can do a few more push-ups. Pretty soon, you're pretty strong. And what doing this, opening that fridge or being at the lunch counter at work and making that decision every day for a period of, of fasting is an opportunity every day to strengthen our willpower so that when we are faced with something, we're going through the internet and we happen to watch something on YouTube because we have to watch something for work or, and all of a sudden we see something that there's that doesn't look good. Well, if we haven't exercised our willpower over and over, we don't have the strength to resist that thing. But if we if we resisted the yearnings of that for that hamburger or whatever it is in the refrigerator over and over, then when we see something on the internet or a billboard or or something on the street or something at work, whatever, so anything that's a something that is actually evil, we have the willpower to say no, that's not good for me. No, that is not for me, and resist it and turn the other way. And so what we're doing is we've turned away from, we're strengthening our ability to turn away from sin and death, turn away from the ways of the devil, and turn toward God. And then the prayer, of course, is part two. Right? Prayer is that if we turn toward God, we have a conversation with him. Right? You cannot have relationship without conversation. And so we can think of, I, I like to remind uh, uh, my parish during this time of it, you know, if you have siblings, maybe that all of us have, you know, maybe multiple siblings or multiple friends from when we were kids or something or whatever, those that we've continued to have a conversation with that we pick up the phone and talk daily with, or we live in proximity to so we can speak to them regularly. We have a good, strong relationship. 
But those who live at a distance or, or for whatever reason, we don't regularly converse. It's those that our relationship has become, has become very weak. And so if we want to have a strong relationship with God, it's not just turning away from, from evil and turning toward God. But now we have to build that relationship, and we do that through conversation, through talking to him about, about our life and our needs, and then listening quietly in our heart as he talks back to us. We have to have communion with him if we're going to become one with him. And uh, that's, that's, that's beautiful. It's just reliance upon the Lord then that enters us, that makes us joining one with him. And we know then at the end of the gospel what he says, that, there, that what's, of what's coming, huh? the passion the death, the resurrection of Christ. Ultimately, this is the pathway. As I've oftentimes said, no one will rise from the dead who has not first died with Christ. And I can, I can imagine how, how the apostles must have come home night after night or St. Paul coming back from his ministry and throwing up his hands sometimes. And my argument was perfect. My explanation was right. I mean, I know he rose from the dead. I saw him. Why can't these people receive what I'm saying? And it, it's just at that moment the Lord reminds us that it's not the, the wisdom of men that's going to, to bring the world into communion with God. It's only our reliance upon him and allowing him to speak through us, to the, through that, which that's going to happen. As we look now, all of this as a background, we can jump right into the epistle, and it just makes so much sense. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that's in the New Testament, brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9 through 16. Brethren, I think God has sent forth us, the apostles last of all, as men doomed to death, so that we would become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ, for you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are without honor. To this very hour we hunger and thirst, and we are naked and buffeted and have no fixed home. And we labor, working with our own hands. We are reviled and we bless. We are persecuted and we bear with it. We are maligned and we console. We have become as the refuse of the world, the scum of all until this present time. I write these things not to put you to shame, but to admonish you as my dearest children. For although you have 10,000 tutors in Christ, you have not many fathers. Therefore, I beg you, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. First, there's, there's a lot to say here. Very interesting, uh, this idea of becoming an imitator of St. Paul, which I'm sure many of our Protestant brothers and sisters say, well, this is, we're supposed to be imitators of Jesus, not of St. Paul. But we can talk about that in a minute. Father Sebastian, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What's going on in the context here? Well, 1 Corinthians is one of those epistles that often people hear out of context. And what I mean is, though, when people think of St. Paul, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I'm sure you've heard people say, well, St. Paul was a very difficult man. He was very rough. Uh, he was always angry. 
no, not really. If you read the stories, he really was a very patient individual. But what they're remembering is they've heard readings from 1 Corinthians and Galatians, which are two epistles, and sometimes 2 Corinthians, where, where Paul was, was a bit frustrated with a few things in the community. So what's going on? 1 Corinthians, this is a letter written, first, Paul's first letter written to the church in Corinth. Paul had had that revelation on the road to Damascus. He had been baptized. He became an apostle. He was sent out. And he went on his first journey from Antioch, from our, our mother uh, city of our church, <clears throat> and went off into Asia Minor and founded churches. Then he went again on his second journey from Antioch. He left and he went off into, into Asia Minor again, modern-day Turkey. But this time he went over into Macedonia, across the Aegean, and went all the way down into Greece, into Corinth, and founded the church there. And then he returned to Antioch. So he founded that church, just as these other churches he had founded. And, and then when he's on his third journey, again from Antioch, he goes into Asia Minor. But while he's in Ephesus, he hears that there are problems in the church in Corinth. Not just some heresies are developing, but the church is beginning to turn against him. They're not just confused about a few things. They're not just falling into a little bit of error. There are some false apostles, as Paul refers to them, who have moved into the church, and they're governing the church in his absence, and they're turning the community against him, and they're making all sorts of false accusations against Paul. He's not really an apostle. When he came here, was he wealthy? No. Well, see, he's not blessed by God. Uh, have you ever heard of him being persecuted or anything? Oh, yeah, he told us about all the, he was thrown in prison, all the things he had to deal with when he was in Asia Minor. Well, that's because God's not with him, you see. He's not really an apostle. God, God has cursed him with all of this stuff. But we, did you see the Maserati I pulled up in this Sunday morning? God has blessed me, you see. God is with me. So I'm your, your apostle. I'm the one that's going to teach you, and I'll give you the blessings God has blessed me with, okay? Now open up your wallets. So that's what's going on in the church in Corinth, and Paul hears about this. And so before he gets there, he's in Ephesus, just on the other side of the Aegean. He writes a letter and sends it by boat across the Aegean to the church of Corinth. Let him know that he's on his way. He's got a few things to do along the way, but he's going to be there. And that these false accusations they're making are actually – the evidence of his true apostleship, the sufferings he's enduring, and, and everything that they're accusing him of, and the, the evidence of it, that's actually the stamp, the sign, Paul says, that God is with him. And so that's his, the, the context of this, of this first letter to the Corinthians. You know, it makes me think of the challenges that we face in the, in the church today, oftentimes, in our communities when division comes in and often by one person or two people that, and they, they be, they almost like a, like a wedge one or two words, sentences, and they're divisive and they destroy re the, the reputation of, of members of the community. Oftentimes good members of the community, oftentimes the clergy and how sad it is that these things take place even today in our church. I mean, imagine, imagine tearing down St. Paul's reputation. <laughs> that sounds almost crazy to us, but it happened then. 
and it certainly happens now. And we we need to be on our guard. Number one, we need to pray. So we heard in the in the uh, in the gospel account how powerful prayer is. We need to pray when we when we hear those divisive and dividing words. We need to pray for those that are being under spiritual attack as well as those that are attacking, and then become the opportunity for healing as the apostles went out and encountered those who were suffering, this epileptic boy, for example, and, uh, and were called to minister to them. So, and, and how did they minister? How were they called to minister? By prayer and fasting. We have, to go, we have to be serious, a people of prayer and fasting for those in our community that are, being, that are under attack and those that are attacking, that we might bring unity in the body of Christ. Father, there's, there's an interesting theme that kind of develops here toward the end of the epistle text that we're given, and that is the idea of being children of St. Paul. And I'd like to just speak on that for just a moment. It comes back to this idea of being imitators of me as I am of Christ. These relationships which develop in the church, and I oftentimes hear from, I mentioned our Protestant brothers and sisters before, you know, I often hear about this personal relationship with Jesus Christ and that the saints are simply a distraction. They draw us away from Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, and so forth. But this is really a late, a late interpretation of St. Paul's writing. It has nothing to do with what St. Paul's really talking about. It speak to us a little bit about this apostolic understanding of being children of St. Paul being imitators of St. Paul, and, there, and, and then by extension, St. Paul's role in the community. Yeah, so as you said there, you, know, you, you quote from 1 Timothy, you know, as Paul says, there's one mediator between God, man, and the man, Christ Jesus, which is often quoted in this kind of a conversation mm-hmm. by a, a modern-day Baptist. But what they fail to notice is that that's a few verses down from the beginning of that chapter. If you read the first verses that are leading, the verses that lead up to Paul saying that, he's, t- he's telling Timothy and the community in Ephesus to make sure that they pray for each other, pray for Paul, and pray for all, everyone. Which, in, which means that he's asking in this context for intercession, for mediation. So uh, what, what they've done is by skipping those few verses and taking the verse 5 out of context, they, they turn Paul into a schizophrenic, but they never, of course, read those first few verses. What Paul is saying is that we are all members of the body of Christ, and it is, and, and therefore we need to pray for each other. And so Paul says, uh, he refers to the Corinthian community as his children. He is their father. He, when he writes to Timothy, he speaks in the same way. We just celebrated the feast of Elijah, I remember that story, you know, where when he's going up in the chariot, Elisha, who is not his genetic child, says, my father, my father, right? As Elijah's going, Elijah was Elisha's spiritual father. And even more so here than in the, in the New Testament, when we're talking about a participation in Christ, we are members of the body of Christ. And so therefore, Paul can say, not just like Elijah and Elisha, a spiritual director, a spiritual father, but Paul can say, be imitators of me as I am, I am of Christ, because Paul is Christ. And they are Christ. And they participate in that relationship uh, that Paul participates in. 
as being real members, real pieces, parts of the body of Christ. So it's not, it's not as sometimes a Baptist might think, taking something away from Christ, but rather it's confirming our baptismal state when we pray for each other, when we ask each other to pray for, whether that individual has died and has gone to be with the Lord, we continue to confirm our understanding of the baptismal state being alive in Christ, whether they've died in the body or not. St. Paul has died in the body, but St. Paul is as alive as he was back then and still praying for the community. Timothy, is a, though dead in the body, is alive in the body of Christ and is with the Lord, and Timothy and the Christians of Ephesus from that first century are still praying and interceding like Paul told them to do for all of us. And St. Paul says, no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Just a little uh, a helpful hint for our, our brothers and sisters who are engaged in the apostolic work of the church and in, in, in preaching and evangelizing. You know, you got to use your, use your Bibles as your, your you know, like St. Paul says, the sword. Uh, and I encourage you to use a pen, highlighters, and so forth. This is a text which a lot of times, my brother mentioned First uh, uh, um, Timothy chapter 2. Look at that Bible marked up. Uh, mine's not quite as marked up, but maybe not quite as confusing either. Uh, but here's the text in chapter 2. But see, one mediator right there between God and man. That's what they're going to point you to. And so your eyes got to come back to... Context. I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men. So that immediately when someone turns you to that verse, your eye is taken with your pen back to what you're going to say. A text without a context is no text at all. And whenever someone whacks you over the head with a, a verse of the Bible, get out your entire Bible and return the favor <laughs> by having the context of the text that was given to you. If it doesn't feel right what they're saying, if it doesn't jive with apostolic Christianity, it's a twisting of the words of the Bible, which will ultimately end in destruction. And you don't want to end it for yourself or the person you're speaking with in destruction. You respond in love, giving the context of what St. Paul is talking about, and you're going to be able to bring the person more deeply into communion with Christ. This whole, this whole theme is so fundamentally important as we consider this post-Pentecost season, as we engage now in the ministry of Christ, as the apostles were going out and healing, we're meant to go out and also to bring the healing words of Jesus Christ to those that we encounter. But just as they, they um, uh, confronted challenges and difficulties, so we are going to do the same. And how are we going to respond? On August 1st, we begin a more intensive time of prayer and fasting, that we might enter more deeply into the ministry of Jesus Christ. And as the mother of God herself went through death, that she might behold the face of her son once again, we too also in our ministry undergo this, say, uh, spiritual death to our old self, that we might rise again in Jesus Christ, strengthened not by our own uh, tongues or our own highlighters and pens and our own swift thinking and talk, but by the power of Jesus Christ, having been connected as St. Paul was with the sufferings of Christ, all of us Christians entering through baptism, enter into this ministry of Jesus Christ. We know that if we have been united with him, that it will ultimately lead to a life which is his, 
a life which at the end of the gospel tells us will end in the resurrection, but in order to end in the resurrection, must go through the passion. We sing on, on August 6th, the Feast of the Transfiguration, O Christ God, you were transfigured, the Kentuckian of the Transfiguration. O Christ God, you were transfigured on the mountain, and your disciples saw as much of your glory as they could hold, so that seeing you crucified, they would know you willed to suffer your passion and would proclaim to the world that you are truly the reflection of the Father. May we all enter into this beautiful uh, gift of the passion of Christ, that we also may be transfigured to become the shining light of Jesus Christ to the world and to all we encounter. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.